Hi, it's Laura. Thanks for listening to What on Earth. You might have noticed we've been trying some new things lately. We want you to keep listening, and we also want to get even more Earthlings on board. So whether you're new or a longtime fan, here's what we want to know. What do we do best? What should we rethink? What do you want to see us try next? Please fill out our survey. It's at cbc.ca slash whatonearthpod. We're listening. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? For the people living in Chamoli District in the Himalayan foothills of Uttarakhand State in northern India, it started with a terrifying sound, a rumble that became a roar. From high above the valley floor, villagers watched a torrent of rocks, mud, ice and water tear away homes, bridges and a dam that was still under construction. Most importantly, the surge of debris left more than 200 people dead or missing. That was just a few months ago, and it triggered a team of scientists to come together spontaneously at breathtaking speed, using satellites, radar, and Twitter, of all things, to figure out the cause and, more crucially, whether there's yet more danger to come. What those men and women learned about a disaster a world away will help to understand the risks here in Canada, too, especially on the West Coast. We're just starting to acknowledge the risks and the potential for devastation to communities that are living along the coast. Now, we covered the disaster just days after it happened. Now, the scientists have published the results of their work. While there's no single reason for the flood, climate change may be a factor, altering the conditions in the Himalayas and increasing the rate at which glaciers retreat around the world. This week, we take you back to those first days and hear the latest on what science has learned from the disaster. We start our show in the hours after the flood, Sunday, February the 7th. Shashank Bhushan woke up in Seattle with his phone and his feeds buzzing. That morning which I woke up, the first thing I generally do is look at the news feed and open my Twitter account. Uh, I have been following all the glaciologists and geomorphologists who work on the Himalayas and all of their Twitter feed was buzzing with this event. Bhushan studies glaciers as a doctoral student at the University of Washington and he says his family hasn't always understood why the research he does matters. Before this, whenever I used to talk to my parents uh, about the work which I do and try to explain them that, okay, measuring how glaciers are flowing and melting is important. It's a gradual process and we need to keep track of the changes taking place to better understand what we would do. And they were like, okay, but who cares about it now? But that Sunday morning, it was different. I checked my WhatsApp messages and my family members were at it saying that, oh my God, this big event has occurred in Uttarakhand. And some of them were looking at me for an answer because I have a degree in geology as an undergrad. This event hit home the point that understanding how our Earth works are very important. Like uh, we can't wait for the thing to hit us to understand how they work and how they behave. That behavior, as he puts it, was something dozens of scientists were starting to analyze, with researchers from India, Nepal, Switzerland and Canada collaborating to figure out what had happened. University of Calgary professor Dan Sugar was one of them. He's the lead author of a paper just published in the journal Science. So I was tagged in a tweet by an Indian colleague uh, who, who now works in Germany. 
and he had uh, shared a video uh, of this sort of wall of water coming down um, one of the river valleys. And I responded and said, well, send me some coordinates so I can begin to look at, uh, you know, any data that might be available. Within 10 minutes, Dan had a location. 20 minutes later, fresh satellite images and then a match. What immediately struck me was uh, this sort of dusty cloud in the air, which was very similar to what uh, what I had seen in that video that my colleague Rakesh had posted. Dan and his colleagues used videos from YouTube, Twitter and Facebook to piece together what had happened. And one of my colleagues was actually able to analyze all these different videos, seven, eight, nine videos, um, to figure out the exact timing of the event, the speed that the water was moving. And so he was able to locate individual buildings or individual features in these videos and then figure out exactly where that point was, that, that building, that house, whatever, from imagery like in Google Earth, for example, so as to geolocate the person who was making the, the video. And so we could actually sort of get a, a story in video form of this, this event moving downstream. And he says there are lessons to be learned. From a educational standpoint and from a, a sort of a planning perspective in terms of what we should be doing when citing these large infrastructure projects, understanding what actually happened is, is really important. While that real-time eyes-in-the-sky collaboration was beginning, in India it was a different picture for people on the ground in Uttarakhand, normally known for its natural beauty framed by the Himalayan mountains. I'm Shantosh Kumar Rai and I'm working as a scientist at Wadiya Institute of Himalayan Geology. And Rai studies glaciers in the region, his office just a few hours' drive from the site of the devastation. He told me in February people there are angry at what they see as a betrayal by government, one that left so many vulnerable to death and destruction. I'm also angry because they did not do enough groundwork and they did not bother about installing some monitoring instrument like a weather station. We don't have any information so we could study all these things in advance and at least some early warning system could have been uh, put in place. Insufficient monitoring, no early warning to allow people to get out of harm's way. Rice says his scientific institute has urged more action, but he complains it hasn't been given the resources to install monitors at every one of the hundreds of glaciers in the state. To install such instrument at uh, every glacier is not possible for us because Uttarakhand has more than 1,000 glaciers so we cannot put uh, instrumentation in every area. However, people are now becoming more adventurous and adventurous, and they are daring to build houses even at the remote locations, and they want to uh, generate all the facilities there. So we have to put some regulatory uh, rules and procedures uh, for such kind of uncontrolled development, particularly in the higher reaches of Himalaya. So it's not just more dams, it's more highways and more development. And as forests are cleared, the soils are becoming more unstable. Even before a cause of the flood was clear, one thing was certain. The Himalayas are getting warmer and warmer. Thank you.
For years, Flip Wester has been warning of the risks a warming world poses to people in the Himalayas. He works with the International Centre for Integrated Mountain Development in Kathmandu, Nepal. We caught up with him days after the deadly flood. Oh, we, we heard about it straight away. It was really quite amazing how quickly that news spread and actually the very horrifying video. I think I was watching that within an hour or two of the disaster happening. And what was your reaction to seeing that? <sighs> oh, just terrible. I mean, there was such a mass of debris, of water flow mixed with mud, with rocks, and just watching that going, what is this? It's really quite horrifying. And, you know, the people living there, there's no way you're going to escape this. This, you know, you're gone. This is a death penalty. This, it was a very serious, very alarming uh, event. It must be devastating for you and for others who know the region so well and know this as, as, as somewhere that people live, not just the wild nature of it all. Exactly. And I've been up there, uh, you know, in the mountains in Uttarakhand and, you know, know people who work there. And it was, in another sense, worrying because we have been predicting that these types of disasters would become more frequent due to climate change. But then to actually see it happening, I would say earlier than we would have expected. You know, we'd think 10, 20, 30 years down the line. And had your group been warning about this kind of thing? Oh, yes. For more than 20 years now, deep concerns about, you know, the global warming, what that will do to the glaciers, what that will do to the mountains. But then you say you've been warning about this for such a long time. Have the warnings been falling on deaf ears? I mean, they were building dams downstream. Yes. So there's, as in any country, as in any community, there's always competing interests. And, you know, certainly countries in the regions are energy poor. So building hydropower dams up in the mountains to some would seem to be a good proposition. And then you take risks. And I think this disaster in Uttarakhand will certainly lead to a reassessment of, is it really such a smart idea to be building what is actually green energy? So it's actually part of the solution, right, to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So that's what makes this a complex story. But with this event, I do think it will lead to a reassessment and a much larger awareness. I think that's the important thing. The majority of the people live downstream. They might not be knowing so much about what's happening in the mountains. But this, you know, especially in, in India, but across the region, everybody saw this happen, uh, you know, on Facebook, on, on Twitter and on television and will certainly lead to questions being asked that, you know, is it a good idea to be pursuing these kind of uh, developments uh, this high up? You, you make a lot of, of good points there, including the irony of the fact that they were actually building something that is green and it's, it's led to so much death and destruction. One of the questions, though, is if you are going to continue to build in these regions, is it incumbent upon government to create some kind of an early warning system for the people who live there? Yes. We've worked with the government of Nepal and the government of China on uh, one of the rivers that actually comes you know, off of Everest. And there are uh, these glacial lakes forming you know, in, in Tibet, in the Tibetan plateau. And there, there's concerns about when those could break. So we've done modeling work on that and how much time you would have to get out of the way. And actually, you have less than an hour. And early warning systems in that case have been installed and they have worked. But still, the effect of these types of flooding events is huge damage to infrastructure and then, of course, loss of life. I'm not aware of an, this specific instance of, of if there was or was not an early warning system. Uh, but I would say even if there was, this was such a massive event 
And it, it would appear that quite a large segment of a rock face high up on the mountain slipped and, and fell off. Basically, a, a size of 40 football fields of rock that fell down uh, and then hit the valley below. And then that turned into a massive debris uh, water flow. You cannot build early warning systems that can help you with that. You know this area. You've lived there for a long time. You know these people. What does it mean for their future of living below the Himalayan mountains? Is it time for them to move? And if they did, what would that represent to them in terms of their cultural life and their history? People have been living here for, you know, thousands of years. And people have been living high up in the mountains and have their indigenous knowledge, their their local knowledge and know how to survive and actually you know, know where weak spots are, know where rock avalanches happened, you know, three, four generations ago, they will continue to tell those stories. So it's better not to, you know, build a settlement here. So I wouldn't say they need to move out. But what I would say is the mountains are now rapidly changing due to global warming. So these repertoires of knowledge that have built up over thousands of years are less applicable to this changing situation. So it becomes a much more hazardous environment for people to live in. If they then need to move, move where to? The slums uh, downstream in the lowlands? You know, it's, it's a tough choice. Why do you think the rest of the world should be paying attention to what happens there? It is so far away from so many of us. Well, yes and no. And I think the metaphor, in a way, is, you know, the canary and the coal mine. The Himalayas is at the forefront of, of global warming. We're warming twice as fast uh, as the rest of the world. As I might add, Canada is also, right? And the impacts we are starting to see, you know, are so much larger than than even up to five or ten years ago was, was expected. So I, I do think the world should care. And I do think the world cares because, you know, these mountains are iconic. Uh, everybody knows the Himalaya. Everybody knows where that is. Everybody knows those are the tallest mountains in the world. Uh, there's also 240 million people living in these mountains and hills of the uh, Hindukush Himalayas. And they deserve to be heard, and they deserve also to be uh, supported on these front lines of climate change. Flip Wester, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Good talking to you. We know the news can be relentless, and it's hard to keep up. On Your World Tonight, it's our mission to catch you up in less than 30 minutes. When news breaks, our reporters are there across Canada and around the world. We bring you context and analysis and sort out what's real and what's relevant. I'm Susan Bonner. I'm Tom Harrington. I'm Stephanie Skanderis. We host Your World Tonight. New episodes every night, seven days a week. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. In the days that followed, news articles floated different theories about what had happened and why. One said heavy snowfall followed by bright sunshine had something to do with it. Another suggested the flood came from a glacial lake bursting. In fact, Calgary geoscientist Dan Sugar and his colleagues found it was a colossal collapse of rock and ice, 27 million cubic meters worth. That's enough to fill up the Sky Dome or Rogers Centre 17 times falling from a height of about six Eiffel Towers piled one on top of the other. The initial fall of the, the rock and ice down about almost two kilometers of mountainside 
occurred, you know, in a matter of um, about a minute. And that debris was traveling on the order of 200 kilometers per hour. So very, very rapid. And then the material then moved down um, different river valleys, the Rontigad, the Rishiganga, and the Dauliganga. And the speed there was was considerably slower, about half or, or less. But the whole thing to the point where it got to the Tapovan uh, hydropower plant, which was the, the big one that, that many people will have seen photos of, uh, that was probably on the order of, of around 20 minutes. So not a lot of time, you know, even if they had had a warning from the moment it had occurred, not a lot of time to get people to safety if they were deep inside, you know, the, the tunnels, et cetera, at the, the hydropower plant. But, but looking back, when you, when you know where to look, you found images of the rock face slipping days before the collapse. So was there any way to see this coming? Yeah, that's the million dollar question. Um, you know, satellites have really revolutionized how we do earth science, how we do hazards work. And, you know, with hindsight, of course, we can go back and look at places and say, oh, yeah, there was some motion of that slope beforehand or, or, or there wasn't. Um, but the, the issue is that, you know, there's a lot of slopes out there. And to monitor every single slope 24 hours a day is, is an incredibly onerous and expensive undertaking. I think we need to be doing a better job, you know, when citing large infrastructure projects, whether that's a hydropower plant or a pipeline or a highway, we need to be doing a better job of assessing the hazards that exist in the surrounding valleys, um, not only the hazards that exist now, but the potential hazards that might exist down the road as the climate changes and as those, those mountain landscapes evolve. But a warning system has since been installed. W will that help? That, yeah, that, that, that's a very tough one to answer. The um, you know, studies have shown that early warning systems absolutely help, but they help more when they're coupled with education, with, with drills, that sort of thing. And so if, you know, if there's an early warning system, but nobody really knows what to do about it, then it doesn't really do much. So we've been talking about the warming in the Himalayas on this episode. What role might climate change have played in this collapse? Doing climate change attribution studies uh, for, for particular single events is really, really tough. And especially so when there's a lack of, of in situ data. So in other words, um, information about the ground temperature or the air temperature or whatever at this particular site. And that, that's the case in this, you know, in this Chamoli example, we, we don't, we just don't have those kinds of data. There are a few um, ways that climate and climate change may have contributed to the, the landslide and the, and ultimately the disaster, but it's really tough to say conclusively. And, and, um, and so, why so tough? Uh, well, cause we just, you know, we just don't have, we just don't have good data. Ground temperature measurements, for example, from from this, this slope or even anywhere nearby to tell us whether the um, permafrost had been thawing, for example. Um, the weather station data, none of it was particularly close or, um, or, or, or allowed us to see much before the event itself. And so it's hard to know what exactly was happening in those with those kinds of conditions what we can say generally speaking is that as the climate changes so changes in precipitation um 
you know, severity and, and patterns, changes in temperature, air temperature, etc. As climate changes, disasters will in general increase and, and that may be meteorological disasters, that may be geophysical disasters, you know, like like as caused by a landslide, for example. In other parts of the world, like in Southeast Alaska, there have been studies conclusively linking increasing temperatures to larger or, or rather more frequent um, large landslides that are related to glaciers. But that's a bit of a different story from the Chamoli example. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about this. There was a massive landslide on the BC coast this past November into a remote area called Butte Inlet. And as you said, the causes are different. But is this something that we should expect to see more of? I think in general, yes. Um, you know, we from examples in in um, in Alaska and, and maybe Yukon, we are starting to see more of these very large rock avalanches similar to what we saw at Butte Inlet. One of the big differences between the Butte Inlet landslide and the Chamoli landslide was that the Butte Inlet one was a landslide that collapsed down onto the terminus or the toe of the glacier or very close to it and then into a lake which caused a flood. In this case, the, the glacier was actually on top of the landslide. So a bit of a different relationship between the slope and, and the ice. Um, but in general, I, I suspect we are beginning to see more of these kinds of very large landslides in glaciated terrain as glaciers retreat, but also as precipitation patterns and air temperatures change. And you touched on this a bit already, but, but I just want to ask you big picture. What does a changing climate mean for how we should be thinking about hazards in these mountain landscapes? Yeah, well, the, you know, all landscapes are dynamic. They're always changing, even if imperceptibly. In mountains, um, I think, and maybe this is just my bias because that's where I like to be, yeah, but mountain landscapes seem to change a little bit more dramatically or more rapidly than, than others. And I, I suspect that that's largely a product of gravity playing a big role. And so when we throw climate change into the mix, these dynamic mountain landscapes are changing quite a bit more than, than we might expect. And so, you know, if we were to do a hazard assessment of a particular valley, um, a, you know, a steep mountain valley, uh, let's say we, we did that today, that doesn't mean that, you know, once the report is written, that's not the end of the story. In 10 years, it may be quite different in 20 years. And so, you know, if we're building a hydropower plant or a pipeline for that matter, in uh, a particular valley, we need to be planning for what that valley might look like in 20, 50, 100 years, right? Because these, the hydropower plant is not a two-year project. It's going to be there for decades. And so we need to be thinking much longer term about how that landscape will, will look, will uh, behave, um, and what hazards it might pose. I suspect this all means, too, a lot more work for you to do in the future, perhaps again with a global team effort. Thank you so much for this, though. Thank you very much. Now, we know climate change is increasing the number of wildfires, floods, and glacial landslides, and making them worse. It's also raising questions about how to respond when disaster strikes. I spoke with Brooke Ackerley in February. She is a professor of political science at Vanderbilt University. It's one thing to respond to a quote-unquote natural disaster, but if the root cause can be linked to climate change, should we be responding differently? 
I would say with natural disaster in general, there is always the natural part and there's always the social part. How disastrous a particular environmental or climatic event is for a population has a lot to do with what kind of governance structures, preparedness, and response structures we have available. Because of the nature of climate change, the normal ways we think about responsibility don't really apply. We should set aside the normal ways we think about responsibility and think less about what am I individually responsible for and more about what can I do and how can we respond so that the world that we're leaving for our children and grandchildren and the families who were affected this week is a better place. So I think climate change asks us to shift our thinking about responsibility to be less about backward-looking responsibility and more about looking forward to the kind of world we want to create and what we need to do together to create it. So then does that let people off the hook in other parts of the world in trying to do anything about what has happened in India right now? So when you think about a crisis, and we've got decent data to show this, people generally like to respond to a crisis. So if we want to respond individually, say, for example, by sending money, the question is not whether to do so, but how to do so. If I'm concerned about this problem long term, then I want to direct my philanthropy in a way that enables those people who live in those communities to, in the process of leading their own disaster and recovery, to have more political power at the end of it. But the other way to think about responsibility at these moments is not just responsibility for this particular crisis, but also to think about the fact that this is climate-related, and then to think about, well, what does taking responsibility for climate change look like? Even if I don't anticipate that where I live, the impacts are going to be ones that particularly displace my home or my livelihood, still am I not responsible in one of these more collective ways for addressing climate change. Do you think that that people in our part of the world are ready to take that on? I think people are ready. I perceive a lot of willingness, but I also perceive that people are having trouble making the links between their individual action and the larger collective impact they want to see. However, there is no other way but to have an impact through our individual action as consumers and social actors, and then also as political actors. And in our cases, democracy, it should affect how we vote. So even when we understand the problem of responsibility as being a collective responsibility, I think you're already asking the right question if you're asking yourself, how can I take responsibility for this? What does it mean for me to do? And I think there are concrete things that an individual can do, such as learn about what's happening in other parts of the world so that you do feel more connected, talk with people about climate change. And finally, when you think about what your actions look like, because individuals alone can't change those broader patterns, we we have to change them together. Dr. Ackerley, it's been a thought-provoking conversation. Thank you. 
thank you very much for the opportunity to speak with you and your audience. Brooke Ackerley is a professor at Vanderbilt University where her work focuses on climate change, global justice, and human rights. That does it for us this week. Thanks to our What on Earth team, associate producer Jennifer Van Evra, producers Lisa Johnson and Molly Siegel. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. Our senior producer is Manisha Janakaram. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.